It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 30, Blood Relatives. To review the book, I'm joined by my two entirely unrelated by blood colleagues, Mr. Morgan, Brother Beyond Brown. Hello. And Mr. Stephen, the Thompson Twins, Royston. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> my name is Paul Abbott, and I'm related to a series of events that police are currently looking into. The usual pleading and begging applies, as you normally hear at the start of the podcast. Visit ko-fi.com to contribute a one-off donation, if you'd like to, to the running of the show. But what would be even more helpful is, if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, if you could take a couple of minutes out to leave us a preferably five-star review and uh, help us keep spreading the word. Thank you very much. I've got some bonus admin here as well, because I've had another McBain article published on crimereads.com. This time it was all about adaptations of the 87th Precinct books and whether or not Hill Street Blues ripped McBain off. And it's already generated some fairly interesting and occasionally strident responses. (laughs) So if people want to go onto crimereads.com and find that and, um, you know, read it and share it and... And respond in a strident fashion. Do you want to give us a spoiler as to whether they did or not? (laughs) Well, whether he ripped him off or not. Yeah. Well, all I do is present the evidence. But I think people have read the article thinking that I have said it definitely was the case that McBain ripped... uh, Hill Street Blues ripped off McBain which I haven't. I have merely reported the facts. <laughs> Just the facts, Make man. of them what you will. Yeah. But it's got a, a rather inflammatory headline, Yeah, um, which I didn't write, so... <laughs> oh, not what headline. does it Title. say? Yeah. Hill Street Blues ripped... ripped yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. But it's, um, it's very nice of Crime Reads to host another article, and hopefully some folk will read that and perhaps come and listen to the podcast and... Mm-hmm. Argue with us about that as well. <laughs> Give us lots of one-star reviews because you disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Anyway, another little thing I need to mention here is that our long-time listener and very dedicated supporter of the show, Stella Weaver, has got a book out. Mm. Now, romance fiction is sort of outside the jurisdiction of this podcast normally, but Stella's always been very kind and enthusiastic about the podcast and been a long-term Indeed. supporter. A uh, good friend to us here at Hark, and so we want to let you know about her book. So let me tell you. When his new friend flips the script from buddy comedy to love story, Stephen, oh, it's taking your name, <laughs> has to face his fears to keep this tale from turning into a disaster. Oof. Smarty Pants Romance and debut author Stella Weaver present Sticking to the Script, a full-length LGBT romantic comedy set in Penny Reed's Knitting in the City world. Read what early reviewers are calling a happy, fun, but also deep and touching read. An utterly fantastic debut that's engaging and well-paced. And sticking to the script is available for download now on Amazon and free to read today if you've got Kindle Unlimited. So congratulations, Stella. Indeed. You are a published author with already good reviews. That's a good start, isn't it? It sure is. Very good. Fantastic. And thank you so much, Stella, for all your support over the... Well, it is years now, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. So, oh God. <laughs> we do like to support our friends anyway. So if you want a break from the horrors of Isola and the 87th Precinct, you can go read Stella's book. If not, we'll help head back to 1975 and see what's happening with blood relatives then. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 1975 bits and pieces in general. Yep. 
well, where should we start? Should we have a little look at a few little bits and pieces from 1975? I guess we can. A little can. bit of context? Go on yeah, then, yeah. Which bridge not? were they building? <laughs> I can't visualise what the world was like. unless. Well, there was quite a few references a road to... road somewhere. <laughs> there was a few references to bridges in the sort of Ooh. things that happened that year, but it was mainly about um, tragedies. Oh, right. So oh. Well, I've not written them down. Some little things that happened, that little things. He said, as he was about to read, the end of the Vietnam War. Yeah, that, that, that minor blip. Yeah. Yes. So that ended on the 30th of April, 1975. Um, the next day, the, the Cold War between Cambodia and Vietnam began. Yeah. So, oh, right. Well, the Americans have gone. Now who? And that Cold War eventually became an, an armed conflict as well. So, I mean, infrastructure-wise, or transport-wise, can you think of any... Uh, railway-based records that might have been set in 1975? What, in this country? Yeah. Uh, I can't, no. 1975? 10th of August, the advanced passenger train achieves 152.3 miles per hour. Oh, right. Crikey. And I bet we're still no quicker than that now. I doubt we're even that quick most of the time. It's parked up at crew one of them. It is rotting away. Mm. Yeah, the advanced passenger train was going to be this sort of saviour, wasn't it, of high-speed travel in the UK? Well, yeah, it was going to be our our equivalent of, like, the French high-speed... The TGV. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Not to be. They pulled the plug on the funding, basically, and went with a cheaper diesel... Uh, alternative. Oh, we got the yeah the intercity one two five. Yeah, there we go. There's some proper train nerdery, <laughs> which is something you can celebrate if you were on the 27th of August 1975. You could have gone to the proper opening of the National Railway Museum in York. Oh right, one yes. of the finest places in the world to go with an engine shed that just smells of engines and sheds. Yeah, it's a brilliant place, the National Railway Museum. Let's see what else I've got on my little list here. Peter Gabriel leaves Genesis in 1975. Oof. Dark days. <laughs> Thus creating a power vacuum yeah. filled by... <laughs> filled by. Yeah, filled by. <laughs> I like it, yeah. Leave that hanging in the air for people. The first monster truck, Bigfoot, is created. Oh, oh terrific. Right. Do you remember the, uh, the model of that with the red and like yellow levers on its back? I don't think I ever had, I had think that. I don't think yeah. it was radio controlled. No, it was battery powered, it, wasn't it? Was it was ba- with levers and you change gears. It would and- clamber over things. Yeah, was- and you could set like a... An obstacle mm. course for oh, it. It was good. really powerful, actually. I, I never had one, but it yeah, was one my, of those things that other kids would bring in on the, the last day of term when you could bring yeah. a toy to school. Oh, wow. We were never allowed to bring noisy toys in. It was That was the one, <laughs> the one thing. Last day of term, you can bring toys and games in as long as they're not noisy. So no Bigfoot for us. <sighs> but it just goes to show how weird it is that a big truck became such a cultural part of like, our lives in, in, ni- in yeah. the north of England in, oh, yeah. in the 19, 80s, essentially. In 1974, big trucks didn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> They're all tiny. In 1975, they did. <laughs> well, you know, there's always a tipping point. Mm, there is. And I have one more very important date. And on the 5th of November, Travis Walton... There's a lot of noise suddenly going on There's in the house. Clanking. Bigfoot's in the yard. <laughs> I think so. I don't know. Trying to drive over the wall. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 5th of November, a guy called Travis Walton disappeared from a place called Snowflake, Arizona. Hmm. He was found five days later, claiming he'd been abducted by aliens. <gasps> oh. So, he apparently had woken up... He, 
this beam came down from a saucer-shaped ship and scared off his workmates. But he woke up in on this craft of being observed by, quote, three short, bald creatures. <laughs> Paul Daniels? <laughs> you like it, but not a lot. As he prepares Travis. to probe. Yeah. <laughs> I do like a sort of a UFO abduction story that... It, is so person is so determined happened that mm. they write a book and then a film gets made oh, in a yeah. book and all that stuff. Well, if his work colleagues ran off, it's well, is yeah. It not... There's uh, lots of it... stuff about them taking polygraph tests and passing and things like that. But mm. you know, maybe they are. Out, maybe that was it. We're disbelieving Travis Walton, or I am anyway. But maybe, <laughs> well, maybe I, I should be incli- so cynical. I'm inclined to believe him. Well, if you live in Snowflake, Arizona, yeah. Perhaps he's just really upset about Peter Gabriel leaving Genesis. <laughs> yeah, he's went blind drunk for five days. <laughs> Snowflake sounds like a very silly name for a place in Arizona. Yeah, quite ironic, I would have mm, thought. Yeah. Probably, oh yeah, I should imagine the snow records through time in Arizona aren't <laughs> particularly, you know. Perhaps there was one snowflake yeah, once. Uh, and the, 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 yeah, the, the, the biggest it, snowfall ever seen in Arizona history. <laughs> a single <one> snowflake. snowflake. <laughs> Melt. Oh. Yeah. Right, uh, some books released in 1975. Oh, uh, Last Bus to Woodstock by Colin Dexter. Oh, right. The first okay. Inspector Morse novel. Yeah, I've got that to read. Agatha Christie's Curtain, Poirot's Last Case. Oh, right. Which she'd written years before, but was mm. published posthumously. It's a bit of a weird story, Curtain. It is, yeah. Autumn of nothing the... to do with curtains. No, no, it's curtainless. Hmm. Oh, well, they are in some rooms, which presumably have curtains. Well, mm. Yeah, Autumn of the Patriarch oh, by... Yeah. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. What a book. I think we all like that book, don't we? It's a good one. And a couple of good ones. Joseph Wamba's The Choir Boys. Oh, now we're talking. John D. MacDonald's Dreadful Lemon Sky. Oh, right. Travis McGee one. And also P.G. Woodhouse gets his knighthood in 1975, just six weeks before he dies. Uh, How old was he then? He was 91, I think. Something like that. Same birthday as McBain. Oh. He was he was quite old, but uh, yeah, this is what happens when you accidentally become uh, perceived as a Nazi sympathizer for a certain period of your life, which he wasn't. But you know, in this day and age, it'd probably be a positive boon. Yeah, he would have received <laughs> it straight away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get to, let's get towards some Bainey stuff with uh, blood relatives. Uh, a bit of publishing history comes out in Random House, nineteen seventy five in America. Hamish Hamilton in 1976 in the UK. The UK paperback is a pan edition, 1978. The US paperback is in Bantam and doesn't come out till 1978. How peculiar. Which is a bit strange because there should be a signet edition at this point. Hmm. But for some reason, this doesn't come out in paperback until publishing things have shifted a couple of years later. Because it says on the cover of the Bantam edition, at last in paperback. Mm. So it's, I don't know why that that would be. I've got to the bottom of that one. No, I? I've I've looked, but I suspect it'll be somewhere hidden in files and letters yeah. from McBain to publishers. Why that one? I don't know. Strange. Don't know. But we yeah, we'll be getting round to Bantam and new publishers in a couple of episodes' time when things change. Mm. 1975, busy year for McBain, because you have another McBain novel, a standalone one called Where There's Smoke. Oh, right, yeah. With the character Benjamin Smoke. Yeah. <laughs> which I've not finished reading. I did start and it's... 
A bit flimsy. That's in my yeah to read it's, pile. It sounds like a setup from a BBC sitcom of the era, doesn't it? It does a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like titles that are like very literal or characters. I'm going to write a book called Raining Sky with a detective called Michael Sky. Yeah, um, and he walks around in the rain quite a lot in this book. <laughs> Yeah, that seems fair enough. Um, it seems a good concept. Some stuff happens, you Copyright know. Copyright that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some, uh, yeah, some other bits and pieces. So we have several publications of short stories from Evan Hunter, such as A Dangerous Affair, which is published in that pulp magazine favourite, Good Housekeeping. Oh. <laughs> and also published under the name Una Aventura Peligrosa in Buen Hogar, which your basic Spanish should tell you is the Spanish for good housekeeping. Mm. Or Good House. Story called The Confession, published in Genesis, which is a sort of Playboy-type mag. A story called Skin Flick, published in Playboy. <laughs> and a book called Doors by Ezra Hannon. So it's the only novel published using his pseudonym Ezra Hannon, mm. which is about a, a thief in New York, basically. So I've never read that. I hope to come across that at some point. Sounds quite interesting. Yeah, never seen that anywhere, I don't think. Yeah, it's published now as a a McBain thing Ah, by the Mysterious Press, as so many of those pseudonym ones are. And apparently, in the 10th of June 1975, saw the premiere and possibly one of only three dates (laughs) of a play, a musical play called Stalemate. All right. Which Evan Hunter wrote and was produced at the Roundabout Theatre in New York, and I can't find anything out about it. Stalemate. It's, I found one reference in a New York magazine listing directory saying, Stalemate, a play by Evan Hunter with music and lyrics by Mildred Caden. It lists some names, says a couple of dates that it's on, and that's all I can find out oh, about strange. it at all. So, and I, you can find out quite a lot about Mildred Caden, the lyricist hmm. and, mu- and composer, but it's not listed in any of her sort of lists of works or anything like that. How so. bizarre. Unfortunately, so is it a for, musical then? Yeah. Sounds I've already decided it's amazing and I really want to see it. It needs now. a revival. It definitely needs a revival. Chess based musical. Before well, chess. Yeah. Before chess. Yeah. 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 Maybe it was just unlucky in the. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he didn't really have much success on stage and unfortunately this is a continuation of, of that. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, then, let's get stuck into the book. We'll have a look at some contemporary reviews when we're summing yes. up a little bit and talk a bit about it. So we better get stuck in to uh-huh. Blood Relatives with the usual question I offer up to you both to start with, which is general thoughts. Do you want to go first, Morgan? Oof, I don't I'll know. Go. Or shall I go first? We'll do what you I like. Think you should go first. Right, okay. Well, it's quite funny reading this book for the second time, actually, because the first time I remember um, an absolute standout from the series, which I think it still is. But probably of all the books we've had so far, the one that perhaps doesn't read quite as well the second time round. Right, okay. Given that a lot of what's good about the book is particularly, well, what, what ultimately happens at the end and like the revelations that you find out about the characters and whatnot, which they're so kind of shocking. They just, taught, as soon as you pick it up, you're like, oh, I remember absolutely everything that happened in this book. Ah. And you do, and you read yeah. it again, and it's like, yeah, I'd not forgotten anything about it, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I can't say for many of the others, in that I've picked some of them up and I've scared, you know, you, you can't quite even remember what the crime was, let alone the perpetrator. Yeah. Um, 
so reading it a second time, yeah, it didn't quite have the impact of the first time, but yeah, still so steep drop off. Still highly enjoyable, I would say. Yeah, that would be in a nutshell. That's a good nutshell. Very, mm-hmm. very well so, nutshelled. Yeah. What do you reckon, Morgan? Um, well, first, first time reading for oh, me. Right. Oh, excellent um, stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's. It, I, I, I think think it's a pretty strong one. Um, quite a lot of good um, procedural info in there as well, which I like. You do get odd entries in the series where that's kind of missing. A, a lot of very toxic masculinity going on in there, which uh, yeah. yeah, not not a book that makes you feel particularly good to be a, a male member of the species. But <laughs> um, no, it's 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 an interesting one. I'm looking forward to discussing it. Well, I will actually pick up on something you said there because you said about the procedural details in it. And although I said I'd read some of these reviews out at the end, I found a review in the Times Literary Supplement by T.J. Binion, and it said. A subtler and deeper novel than most of Ed McBain's 87th Precinct stories, with fewer detailed descriptions of police procedure. And I thought, well, there's quite a few. I feel like there's quite a few bits. It's not like pages and pages of of reproductions of forms or lab reports, but there's quite a lot of moments of... He's he's got back to telling us some more bits about the kind of procedures that occur, like things that haven't cropped up necessarily in previous stories. And I've always enjoyed that about about the series. It's a little bit more thrillery, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the, which is a trend that continues, I think. Yeah, from here on so in. maybe. Yeah, perhaps. so it, it, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's less kind of pacing out every step of the the investigation. Yeah, but, but it, there's still there's still plenty of that in there. I, would, I think. Oh, can I ask? Because it's quite difficult to remember. I've been read it for the first time a long time ago. What point did you ever like figure out what had happened? Or because I reading it back, I kind of because you could remember. I thought. Oh, it's pretty obvious what's going to happen here. I mean, I have, uh, I have my suspicions because the, the solution that it points you to is it, because you can see that coming from so far. Yeah. Or you think it can't be that, so what's it going to be? Because, yeah, because it's so seemingly resolved with mm. half the book to go. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that, that that didn't actually kind of spoil detract, it for me. No, all. right. That, that's how I remember it, yeah. I, I don't remember it. Yeah, because it has got a limited but, cast, and he's not generally in the habit of suddenly introducing a, a completely unknown character not no. generally. To, to solve the problem of the story or whatever. Kind of, well... I suppose we're giving the game away a bit, but well, uh, I will say out of if anyone uh, hasn't read this, stop book, listening now. Yeah, go and go and read it first because this isn't one where it's possible it's, to talk about. Without, yeah, if we don't uh, if we don't spoil it, we can't talk about it. So, so, so that's so. a spoiler done. But yeah, the so the culprit is just hidden in plain view all through the yeah yeah uh, the book from but essentially yeah, page it's one. someone who typically you wouldn't point the finger out out of the possible cast of mm. people who who could have committed the crime it's you know it's a less than obvious thing in in general sort of mm. people who would perpetrate that sort of crime mm. anyway i haven't mentioned that there is a film of this oh, right, from okay. 1978 called les liens de songe is that what you've got or there better known as blood relatives yes Ooh, which cool. i have got on dvd i'm passing Ooh, have you watched it I have watched it. Oh, that's what's his face, Donald Sutherland. Playing Steve Carella. Oh, right, okay. Donald Sutherland and Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance playing the paedophile. A full house of Donalds. Yeah, the double Donald scenario once more. Is it any... David Hemmings as well? Yeah. Is it any good? No, it's bloody awful. (laughs) Well, can I I borrow it? Yeah, you can. We can do a special... We can do a spin-off episode if you want. I would quite like to see it. But but it is thoroughly depressing. I love Donald Sutherland and Donald Pleasance. 
But do you love them in a what is essentially a French Canadian thriller that was made in English, but to be overdubbed into French? Ooh. And introduces extra layers of strange adult-child relationship things. Ooh. It's and does away with basically the entire precinct. Oh right, okay. It's not an 87th Precinct story, that film. Oh. It's based on it, even though it's Corella. There's one other character in the squad that you'd recognise who's called Bert Klinger. <laughs> oh. But why, why? Bert Kling film. <laughs> well, the only reason I could think of that they'd have changed his name to Klinger is that one of the producers of the film was called Michael Klinger. Oh, Michael Klinger. He, yeah. he produced... Mm, now, what? There's, there's a Roger Moore connection with <laughs> oh, him. Oh, this is good. Yeah. I'll let you look into Klinger. that. Did he... Mm. Yeah, so Pat- Patricia Lowry, the character Patricia Lowry is played by Oda Landry. Muriel Starts played by Lisa Langlois. Kenny Ireland plays Burt Klinger. Donald Pleasance plays James Doniak, who is James Donatelli, the paedophile in the book. Mm-hmm. And David Hemmings plays uh, Jack Armstrong, who's the boss, Muriel's boss. Mm. David Hemmings is good. I like seeing David Hemmings. Yeah, he's good, like. isn't he? Quite, I, quite an underrated actor, I would say. Yeah. So Steve was frantically researching well, a Roger Moore, yeah, well, Michael Klinger well, we're connection. All, we're all on ten talks about this. If my <laughs> phone would function like it's supposed to, but yeah, carry on. Don't okay. wait for me. I'm going to be some time probably. I mean, it, it's it's an we've interest. Not what, we've not heard what your thoughts are yet, actually. Well, no, not really. You haven't. But I, they, they are in sympathy with yours thoughts in a way, Steve. That actually, you're entirely right. This is one where once you know, once the first time you read it, you. You're never going to be sort of shocked by by read, when you read it again and going, oh, yeah, that's who it was. I think it's good. It, but again, it's very narrow cast, isn't mm. it, in this one? So Corella is essentially the only cop doing yeah. anything in the entire yeah. book. Yeah, he is, yeah. It's probably got less, yeah, it's probably got l- less amount of squad members than any yeah. other book in the series, maybe, actually. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of good bur- uh, scenes with Maya Maya just in the, providing a bit of background colour yeah. in the squad room. And Berkling and Augusta are discussing their wedding. That's the biggest part of this that is sort of personal story mm. stuff because you don't really hear much about it other than them discussing the fact that they don't want to invite the entire mm. police department to their wedding, which is a setup for the next book in the series, yeah. essentially. So that's in there. There's no Corella home life particularly. No, true. No, there is one good section where... Clings on the phone to Gennaro, having an absolute nightmare of a time trying to get something across to Gennaro. Unsurprisingly, which is what, which is the I think the funniest part of the book really, where he's trying to explain about how ballistics work down the phone to Gennaro, <laughs> and just keeps saying the name Gennaro. It must be on that page about twenty times. He slammed the receiver down onto the cradle muttered, "You no good bastard," and then realised that Corella, sitting at his own desk not three feet away, was watching him. Gennaro, Kling said in explanation, and went back to his typing. <laughs> so he's really setting up the character of uh, Richard Gennaro properly to be this dumb cop. So yeah, it's interesting that in that sense that it's it's absent of squadroom colour and, but I think because of the subject matter, which is very very unsavoury, mm. it it would be a bit too much to distract from that by having mm. a load of other plots going on around uh, it yeah, and, and stuff. So you just need to parade all the horrors that are associated with the plot without detracting from it, I think. So that's what I think. Hmm. 
But we do have a, you know, it's a very dramatic start. And you can imagine as a film producer reading like literally the first two or three paragraphs and thinking, yep, that's exactly how I'm going to shoot it. Yeah. And that's why lots of the editions of this book on the front cover have basically bloody handprints as their motif. Mm. Yeah. Because it's basically someone runs in, a young girl runs in, her cousin's been murdered, and she claims that a man did it in a, after they came back from a party. And Monaghan turns up at the crime scene. Oh, yeah, he's on his own, isn't he? No Monroe. Aww. Is that How... to get rid of all the wisecracking, do you think? I don't know. Well, for yeah. for a minute until he, he finds a... Oh, yeah, he gets the <laughs> uh, the other guy to... Uh... He had found a substitute for Monroe. It's the medical examiner, isn't it? They're sort of talking... Oh, they're talking about whether... What's the most terrible type of death, basically? Yeah, yeah. their least favourite type of wound. <laughs> But yeah, it's the idea that Corella's almost like, he almost doesn't recognise Monaghan without Munro being with him. <laughs> Especially as Monaghan's come directly from a golden anniversary party, so he's dressed really sharply with like a snap-brimmed fedora and, and gloves and uh, bow tie. So that would have been an interesting scene. There's quite a lot of interrogation stuff in this. Mm. So there's quite a few sections where it is script format, interrogation, transcript. Yep. And a massive section where there's a diary transcript, mm. which yep. tells all the backstory, which you don't really get anything like that in any other books, I don't think, in mm. the in the series. That much sort of backstory from a, char- a different character's perspective. Yeah. And uh, I guess the closest thing is the... Which one is it? The one with the model who's the heroin addict, and there's there's quite a lot of... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the title. Isn't that awful? Hang on, which one is it? It's not Calypso, is it? Oh, blimey! No, it's one we've done. The one we've done, definitely. Uh, Um, Oh, world of my own there. Because you you get like a lengthy section which kind of explains everything towards the end there, don't you? Not it's not in diary form, but it's correspondence, is it? My memory is too poor to actually explain this stuff. Doll is what. Yeah, she's writing to a. Husband, is she not? Isn't it? Are they letters or something? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so that kind of reminded me of that in a sense, but it's, That's it's the precedent. It, yeah, it's it's still less kind of just a whole chunk of just another voice telling the story just kind of straight through like like the diary becomes really. I suppose really it's it's not a complicated investigation in a way. Mm. It's quite simple. They do everything you'd think it would do. Someone says, the person I was with was killed and it was a sexual assault as well. I saw a man. The first thing they're going to do is go and find all the known mm. people with that profile, bring them in. So they do. So it's just, it's like one step. Yep. Go and talk to the family. That's the other step. Talk to the work associates and colleagues. Mm. That's the next step. And it would just be that. Yeah. Until the story changes, have a, a couple of very lucky breaks as well. They don't do, they? yeah, yeah. Um, and also, the in terms of finding the weapon, uh, I feel like that's sloppy on the part of the precinct because surely, if you're looking for the murder weapon, you'd look down the sewer grate by where the murder took place. Yes, rather than waiting for some kids playing stickball to do the same thing. Yeah, there is a, <laughs> a few bits of coincidence and chance doing the heavy lifting in this investigation isn't there well they get the kids to hand in the um the knife and then the, the guy to hand in the diary as well and without either of those the uh yeah yeah they wouldn't have figured it out i don't suppose 
Yeah, the, it wouldn't have been enough seeds of doubt in Corella's mind without the other stuff yeah. to actually challenge the person he thinks has, has done it. Also, the lucky break of the guy who had the party deciding to go into the kitchen to make a sandwich. sandwich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. That's quite a good one. Oh, there's a missing knife. Oh. I haven't <laughs> had a sandwich since that person was killed. <laughs> They're made in Germany, don't you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, cause the diary being found, because obviously... so. The victim's diary is going to be essential evidence one way or another, and it's it's been lost. But the diary being found, I think, possibly might be one of the biggest stretches of mm. of chance that there's ever been in any of these books that that would be found by someone who not only knew what it was but would be willing to take it to the police. Yeah, yeah. I I felt like they were going to do something with it with it being found in the bin because the uh, the guy had had to take the bins back inside oh, when yes. he tried to move them out earlier and got told off by the cop on the beat. I thought that was what was going to happen and yeah. then it didn't and they didn't really do much with that. No, and it, I, yeah. By the time you've got a, a key piece of evidence being in essentially the citywide midden, you know, it's going to... How did this guy... So basically a homeless guy... Uh, an eccentric homeless guy wearing a feather boa thinking he's king of this heap of rubbish. Yeah. When they dumped that stuff, that load of rubbish out of the back of that van, that garbage van, is he really ever have going to found that diary unless it was literally on top like a pearl shining in the sunlight? And as he does tell us that there's more rubbish going over it as it lands on the, yeah. the trash heap well, too. just caught his eye. I don't know, yeah. It, it does sound a bit... It's a bit of a stretch. But, well, yeah. I'll, I'll let it go. I think but. it's yeah, it's a stretch, especially when you couple it with the idea that he recognised... He's a homeless guy who lives his life in a garbage heap, but he's read the papers and knows the name and recognises whose diary it is. Yeah, it's quite a strange bit because he could have quite easily just not bothered with mm. any of that. <laughs> yeah. And had it found, you know... Yeah, in the bins, like Morgan suggested. Yeah, like which could have been not put out because they the guy had to take them back in because he wasn't allowed to put them out at his usual time. That would have been a nice, nice way of wrapping it up, but... Meh. Yeah. Who am I to tell Ed McBain how to do his job? Well, he's not around to argue with you anymore, really. <laughs> That's true. Very true. But no, I think I think really what it what it's relying on is it's more of a psychological examination of various people and various attitudes towards... Well, partly sex with minors, yes. which is a, a key part of some of the investigation. And then incest, which is the other part of the investigation, except it isn't quite incest, mm. as he points out in the, the law in, and the in statute. Strict, strictly legal terms of the, yeah, the state. When he's, expl- when he's explaining the, 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 the law in, in that field and he's going on about how, yeah, he can't be prosecuted if there's not corrupt if there's not corroborating evidence or something, then the exception is uh, sex with animals or something. Or, or, or a, yeah, a, a dead person. <laughs> yeah. You can be prosecuted without... It's a good turn of phrase explaining that. Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 very unsavoury. It really un- is. You know, you can't just have all crimes being sort of exciting... Almost impersonal murders, if that makes any yeah. sense. This there is this sort of crime does happen. The actual way it happens in this book and the person who really committed it mm. seems 
a tricky thing, really, to sort of mm. deal with at the end. But it's it is very shocking. I think, yeah, above all else, it's just like a, a total tragedy. The plot, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Almost, you know, Shakespearean kind of. Well, yeah, which you know, he kind of just, draws a deliberate parallel to, I think, yeah, in the, yeah, the course of yeah, and it's just it's just really tragic, isn't it? It, it is, in, yeah. In that, yeah, it's just kind of awful, really, and what happens, and yeah, and it's sort of it's it's sort of tragic, and there's a sort of real sense of the emotion, like embarrassment, emotion in there as well, because at the funeral when the yeah. the cousin of the the dead girl throws himself onto the coffin and you could sort of feel like that's the that's the Shakespearean tragedy but for them there in reality mm. it's embarrassing the sort of cops aren't sure what's going mm. on yeah. it makes this guy look to be you know that brings attention onto him and all that sort of stuff yeah. and you do sort of feel a horrible cringe inside mm. of like oh god imagine that happening imagine being there witnessing that because yeah, because like the diary entries at the end kind of show that, that the victim knew it was you know gonna end badly kind of thing you, you know you could get that sense from her as well I think yeah and so it's all quite the, sad really yeah so those little moments of humor in the books are quite to stand out because it's a it's a nice little break from the yeah. relentless darkness of the subject matter. Mm. I think my favourite is the one with the me- the memorandum. Yes, yeah, so I was just about to refer Corella's, to that. Corella's desk. <laughs> so the commissioner's memo had been signed by a rubber stamp. Therefore, the commissioner's memo was to be ignored. But if the memo was ignored, the use of a rubber stamp signature was still permitted. And if the signature was still permitted, then any orders signed with the signature were not to be ignored. Therefore, the commissioner's memo was not to be ignored. But if the commissioner's memo was to not be ignored, then it outlawed all rubber stamp signatures. And since it had been signed with a rubber stamp, it was clearly to be ignored. Therefore, the commissioner's memo was to be ignored and also not to be ignored. Yeah. <laughs> Carilla blinked and looked up at the clock. <laughs> he decided to go to lunch. You wonder where on earth he got the idea. He must have come across that in some Yeah, it wouldn't surprise parallel. me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just talked to some cop, and his complaint was basically we're getting all these memos through now that <laughs> sort of contradict themselves by their pure existence, <laughs> which is quite good, <laughs> right? And there's also a uh, mention back of the Kling. Uh, doesn't Randall's uh, M uh, Nesbit get a mention as well? Oh yes, you might. Oh, he does, yeah. Somewhere about everyone else might have forgotten what happened, but it, but I haven't. Yeah. And actually, so, 1975, not, not, in in the real world equivalent of that... Would have been the, his exoneration, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, Watergate was still going on. It was sort of the mopping up of the cases of all the other people involved and the, mm. the, the sentencing of, of that. So that was, you know, it's still in the air and then presumably then still in the uh, the fictionalised air of the 87th yeah. Precinct as well for yeah. that one. Right, OK. Well, just before we sum up ourselves, uh, I forgot to mention the dedication in this book is to Jeff and Anita Ash. And I thought, I can't find anything. I was looking, but I found something. So the only clue I can find out who these people are is in, there's a Evan Hunter book called Every Little Crook and Nanny, Mm. which at the back of it, and I haven't got a copy of this, but at the back of it, there's loads of photos of real people who I presume are supposed to be like representatives of characters in the book. Evan Hunter is in there himself. His sons are in there, Mm. things like that. But one of them in that is is Anita Ash. 
credited as teacher, and also someone called Ingram Ash, who's credited as a theatrical advertising representative. And that's who they were mm. in real life. So Ingram Ash was presumably Anita Ash's father-in-law, and Jeffrey Ash, once I'd got hold of this thread, I found out he was a theatre advertising representative as well. So these are clearly a couple that uh, Evan Hunter, Ed McBain knew through theatre land and life in New York. So there we go. Excellent. You didn't defeat me this time. <laughs> Dedication. Right. Some of the reviews from the time. I mentioned briefly T.J. Binion before, talking about a subtler and deeper novel. That seems all right, doesn't it? T.J. Binion. Good it sounds name. like a... Yeah, it sounds like a character in a Western film, doesn't he? <laughs> Binion's Law. <laughs> yeah. Bin, yeah, he could have a whole series of films. Binion's Revenge. Yeah. Binion's <laughs> Trousers. <laughs> Binion's Gulch. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, he was saying fewer... He, she, I don't know. Fewer detailed descriptions of police procedure, which, as we've said, is not really true. And it says, to one's relief, fewer glimpses of Corella's domestic happiness. Oh, Don't be rude about Teddy Corella and the well, kids. Sometimes there is a bit too much about that. Yeah, well, there certainly isn't in this one, as we've discussed yeah. anyway. Not, not much domestic happiness for anyone in this one. No. To be fair. No. Gene uh, White in the Washington Post. Blood Relatives is a top-notch addition to McBain's police procedural canon. The solution is shocking, believable, and strangely moving. Mm. Fair enough. William Weaver of the Financial Times, he, again, was like, well, they don't talk much about the home life, and that's good. But he did say, you follow Corella towards the denouement, step after step, hooked. Hmm. I think that, especially for the first time read, as we've said, that's definitely it. No, that's fair enough. And I'd love to say there was a Newgate calendar review, but I couldn't find one. Oh, rats. (laughs) I searched and I searched through through months and weeks of the New York Times crime review section to try and find it. But clearly he either thought it was too good so didn't want to write yeah. about it or just uh, just I'm ignored it totally. I'm not reviewing this one. <laughs> Ew, don't like it. Uh, yeah, I couldn't find masses of reviews. Those were the ones I found. Mm. And there's loads and loads of reviews of the film. Mm. But oh I couldn't be bothered going to Kaleidoscope gets a mention on the back of the book. Remember Kaleidoscope? Was that Jill Neville on BBC's Kaleidoscope? No, I don't really remember Kaleidoscope. Mm. I should have looked into that, but I didn't. Totally gripping. Yeah, I think so. So we need to sum up and offer up some scores. Uh, do you need to look at Kenneth's output, Steve? No. Oh right. Oh, <laughs> that's a bold, a bold change of attitude. Well. Yeah. Okay, well, in that case, you can go first. In your I story. only know because, uh, yeah, this is one of my favourites, I would say. It was the first time round. And uh, notwithstanding my comments about not quite same impact second time around, it's still a top notch entry as far as I'm concerned. Go so on. I think I would go very high on this one. Ooh. 95, maybe. 95? Nine, nine, and this... a, nine and a half out of ten, I would Blimey, say. Please, shields coming out of your ears. Top of, top of upper echelon. Oh, yes, blimey. Well, Morgan, as a first-time reader of uh, Blood Relatives, go on. Um, I I did really enjoy it. As we've discussed, it probably has some of the the things that we look for in in a kind of uh, typical entry in the series missing, uh, but it's it's got some really good stuff there too. Um, A couple of little stretches of credibility here and there, but... 
it's still really enjoyable. I'm not as enthusiastic as as my colleague, <laughs> um, but I'm going to go in with a what I think is a very respectable uh, 74 police shields. 74. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, seven and a half essentially is still a very good rating, yeah. isn't it, for a book? I am going to split the difference, but slightly on the lower end of the thing. I think the limited rereadability. Oh, it's not. It's not limited, really. It's a, it's a very very good thriller. But the shock of of the ending is a sort of one shot deal, isn't mm-hmm. it? One, it's, uh, hmm. It but I do like it. But then I it I do like to see more of the squad room. I like to see more of the other cops doing things as well, which is why I've sort of. <laughs> highlighting all those little moments in the book but i suppose we'll get into the the next book we do will be all sorts of that stuff going on i think all <laughs> sorts of different people in a different setting and we might go the other way well we might it. well Oops, we might know. but i'm gonna go for oh, 80 please shields okay to get you kenneth on this one yeah well no rounding required no <gasps> We've uh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> we've arrived at eighty-three police shields for this, which definitely puts it in the the, the top section of the the chart. 83. eighty-three police shields for blood relatives. Fair enough. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. Well, if you've got any different opinions, dear listeners, then you are welcome to share them with us on Twitter, and you can see what some folks have said already on there. I think there's a few different opinions about it that have been knocking around that people have contributed. Some people saying it is absolutely superb all the way through. Some people saying the amount of coincidence and chance involved in it becomes a bit much to deal with, especially given who the ultimate perpetrator is. So get on there and discuss it. Twitter's a good place for that, at Hark87Podcast, which is more or less what you find us on anything, really. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the next one is So Long As You Both Shall Live which is one of the stories which became a Columbo episode years oh, later. Yeah. So we might have to do something special for that. Mm. Terrific. But, You'll be beside yourself. Oh, Columbo, Columbo, Columbo. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll do our bonus episode in a minute then. And until then, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye. Fairly well. Well.